There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today I want to talk about creating the best team you can possibly create. Well, actually not creating the best team. I want to talk about how you get diverse experience and diverse perspective on that team so you get the best possible team. Now, for most companies, there's been a push for diversity, and that has typically meant more women on teams and on promotion lists and on top talent list. However, we all know that isn't the only need. It's not that just we need more gender balance. We need broader perspectives. We need bigger experiences, and we need different differences with people of color. And that's the focus I want to talk about today. Now, two things to note before I start with, the language around talking about people of different color is a little complicated or a little confusing around the world. And trying to lump everybody together is rather simplistic. Secondly, the language we use varies a whole lot. So in the U.S. we say African Americans, and in the U.K. obviously they're not going to say African Americans. They were going to say Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic, which is abbreviated as BAME. And in other countries, what's considered people of color can be a completely different minority group. So with all recognizing all the complexity of that, today I want to focus primarily on the Black population, whether that's of Caribbean heritage or African heritage. And if I offend anybody with the language on this, my sincere apologies, just trying to be as sensitive globally as we can. So I want to focus on what to understand the experiences of our black executives and to understand how to gain the trust and the best engagement from black team members and how to move this agenda forward, not just the gender agenda all for the services of delivering stronger, better performing, more diverse, more interesting, balanced teams. Now with me today are two specialists in this field. One is Frank Douglas. Now Frank has had a long corporate career. Most recently, he was executive vice president and group human resources director for MISIS, which is a global technology company. Before that, he was a group HR director for Transport for London, TFL as some of us know it. He's also been in various senior roles at Scottish and Newcastle PLC, at Royal Dutch Shell, and at BT. And then one interesting piece, I think, about Frank's background is at BT, he was the first ever HR manager to win the Chairman's Award for championing and delivering a project that saved BT 200 million pounds over a three-year period. That's a pretty good credit to him. All right, now Frank just recently established... Executive in late 2013 to help organizations and individuals turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones. He's working primarily with UK organizations and emerging markets, particularly on HR strategy, talent management, and diversity. So, the other part you should know about Frank is that at one point in his life, he was a semi professional trumpet player, born in the US, raised in New York, and he attended the Fame High School, which is the High School of Music and Art in New York City. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you for the introduction. It's a pleasure. It's quite a lot to say about you. Well, let me welcome <laughs> my other yeah, guest I, here. Yeah, I, I still another 50 years of my life left, accomplished. I hope. <laughs> yes. My second guest is Jennifer Powell and Frank's colleague as well. Now, Jennifer has over 20 years' experience as a change communication strategist and consultant, and that means that she's an accredited executive coach, helping leaders be the best they can possibly be. She's a communications and change consultant so that she makes sure organizations have clarity and direction to their people with practical communication and engaging opportunities, and she also runs workshops on leadership and communication. Jennifer was previously in the HR management consulting company. She's had executive positions at Cable and Wireless, Transport for London, Xerox Europe. She's worked with a lot of FTSE 100 in financial services, media, and professional groups based in the UK, but that has taken her to work in lots of places around the world. So, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. I'm delighted uh, 
to be able to have the conversation with you today. And I'm interested in how it pans out and what I learn. So am I. And there's a lot for me to learn for (laughs) sure, for all of us to learn learn. Okay, so we're going to do this in two parts. The first part, I want to focus a little bit on your experiences and your advice to companies around the black agenda and increasing the number of black people within our organizations and at all of our ranks. And then in the second half, we're going to turn and talk a little bit more about your personal experience as an executive and what we can learn from insights on that one. So let's start Um, I want to start with how the two of you got to know each other, because I think that experience has really formed the basis of the advice that you give to many companies. Yeah, sure. So, Frank, let me start with you first. Well, yeah, I was was the regional VP for Africa for one of the, the major oil companies, and we were going through a pretty significant transformation of centralizing the organization from some very autonomous um, country leaders and transforming the way the company did business. And I was in charge of, um, in charge is a strong word, I I oversaw Africa um, for the oil company. And when you speak Africa and oil, you pretty much are centering on Nigeria. And Nigeria was one of the biggest challenges we've we've ever had in terms of transformation. Um, It was going to be the first time that we ever were going to have redundancies, um, compulsory redundancies um, in Africa. Um, So there was a huge risk in terms of the unions and strikes, and it's a butterfly effect in the oil markets in Nigeria. If there was a strike, it would have impacted the global oil market. So the highest risk that we had was in in this global um, transformation was actually Nigeria, which was on my patch. We brought in the external consulting firm to help us on the ground and, and trying to come up with a engagement strategy, a stakeholder strategy, and really, you know, making sure we had the best insights we could in tackling that problem. And at the time, um, the partner in charge of the engagement was Jennifer. Um, and she and her team um, worked with us to, to make that happen. And fortunately, it turned out that we were able to um, make that transformation without any industrial action. And I think a win-win for all. Um, and um, Jennifer and I met then, worked together for nine months on that project, and we stayed in touch personally and professionally ever since. Okay. All right. And Jennifer, how about your experience? So, Frank, let me stay with that for just a minute before I turn to Jennifer. What did you learn in that experience working in Nigeria? Well, that's a very interesting question, Wanda. You could probably take a podcast on that subject by itself. (laughs) But um, I would say it it was a very formative experience for me because even though I had had many years of HR experience in the U.S. and at the U.K. at that point, the thing that I realized in Nigeria, but it's true to to many emerging market um, countries, is that you actually have to unlearn all the things that you spent learning in the West. And so for, you know, so the first thing you realize, and I I say this quite, you know, honestly, is as a black American, I walk into an organization in Nigeria and all the senior executives, well, not all, but the majority of the senior executives are black. So that's the first thing is that, you know, it's very rare where the dominant culture is a black culture versus a, a, a white culture. Um, so that, that, that kind of just shakes you a little bit coming, you know, from, from, from New York where, you know, you're, you're, you're clearly a minority and most senior meetings. But the other thing you realize is that, you know, from the, 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 the realities of tribalism to the fact that in Africa, you know, there's a high value placed on hierarchy and status and respect and gender, male, you know, for the most part, um, that you just have to approach things differently. So, you know, in fact, the person who might be sweeping the steps as you're walking up to the executive offices could be a tribal chief. And as a tribal chief, he wields a lot of influence over that, um, you know, the, the organization in some ways. And so, you know, I realized, first of all, if you have to throw away the normal organization charts. It just doesn't work when you're trying to find influence. And then the other thing, uh, quite honestly, is that in, in, in the emerging markets, 
you also have to be focused on the stakeholders, which many times are external, um, the government and the communities. So it, it was just, it's just the, the, the change process in, in, in some places like Nigeria, but in other emerging markets, it, you, you just have a lot more parties involved, and the way you view the organization you have to sometimes just turn upside down. And it's that unlearning, which you know, maybe I'll come back to, that probably one of the greatest skills I learned in, in, in working in, in Africa is that that's just a capability that um, you have to carry with you. Okay. Frank, fascinating. So I love this notion that you come with, with your own experiences and expectations, one of those being that you've been typically the minority in the room, and suddenly you are not, at least from skin color, the minority in the room any longer. And that is a change in experience, for sure. But that equally, your approach to how you get things done in the organization has to now be completely unlearned and rebuilt from a ground up, and that has some profound implications. And this this whole notion, I, I can really see how the tribal character, you just have to think about your org chart much differently than you would normally. You, you do, and, and, and the, 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 the importance of engagement. Um, now, you know, we all talk about engagement, you know, in HR and in, in, in the leadership environment, but, but there the engagement just takes on much more power in that you, you really have to not just you know, um, look at the business case, but you, you really have to win the hearts and minds of people um, as to why you're doing this and, and, and really present the, the issue of, you know, the, the option of doing nothing and what does that entail. And, and, and many times in, in, in the West, if you wish, you know, when, when, when there's a transformation taking place, very rarely does the leadership ever focus on the do-nothing option. They don't really show you the fall-off and the drop <laughs> over a 10-year period if we didn't do anything. They just kind of say, you know, we, we've made this decision, you know, we're going to reduce this, we're going to refocus our efforts over here, and as a result of that, we're going to have to let some, some people go. Um, rarely is, is, is the, 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 the case made of, of do-nothing. And even more importantly, as, as we did in, um, in this situation, which, again, is another lesson that I've learned, is that you also, we also presented to them the various options at a high level. So if I can just take you 90 seconds with a simple story, because I'm still kind of simple-minded coming from the Bronx in New York. You know, I just break things down to very simple chunks. I, I, I look at it as, as, as buying a house. When my wife and I um, had our child, we both agreed that we needed a change, and we knew we needed a new house. We needed new bedrooms and a backyard. So we had no debate about the change case for a house. I'm sure some people can relate to this. The biggest challenge to us was, why this house? Which house? And what happens in the corporate sector, I find many times, um, was that the organization makes the case for change. You know, we need to do this. Well, the employees can look at the stock price. They, they, they can read the Wall Street Journal. They know. But what they really do is say, why this particular change? And that's really the lesson that um, Jennifer and her team um, really helped us with was that we had to go a step further in terms of why this option. And that's really, I think, a lesson that, you know, we, 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 I carry back here. And I think a lot of organizations um, are missing that trick of, you know, not the case for change, but why this particular change. This particular change. Okay, Frank, I take, take your point that a lot of times what employees need to do is to understand why this change, not the need for a change, but why this particular one. And I can certainly see how that whole experience in Nigeria caused you to rethink and unlearn. So, Jennifer, let me turn to you. What was your sure. experience in, the, in Nigeria? Do you have different insights or the same? Well, um, it echoes some of what Frank said. So I'm black British of Jamaican parents. So I was an outsider to the Nigerian culture, and there's lots of cultural assumptions around my background. And I, too, was used to being certainly the only black person in the room and certainly the only black female in the room. So I was dealing with aspects around color and gender. And the... Things that I, I suppose, in a way, had to learn was about what the context was and what's important. So 
my greatest learning from the Nigeria experience was to really find out what's important to people. So it's understanding the fact that we calculated that for every person that we might have to make redundant, we were actually impacting a family with 20 members. That, in a way, makes it critical that we engage the people who are having to make those decisions around the reason for doing things and to give them strength in that to be able to deal with something which is quite difficult and quite countercultural where they were. The second thing was around the gender thing, which was I do remember that um, my client there said to me, well, Jennifer, you know, you mustn't behave like a Jamaican. You've got to behave like a Nigerian wife. And what she was talking about there was the power of influence. So rather than going straight out and, and declaring something or having a good discussion about something, it was influencing somebody in the way they think. So I think what I came away from Nigeria with was a better understanding about how to influence how to get people to think. And if I think now about how I approach things in terms of a learning organization, I really get leaders to focus on the processing part of any information because I know that people make decisions based on their own conclusions, not on somebody else's. And that actually the role of engagement is to facilitate that discussion and to help people come to the conclusion that you hope they're going to make, but you can only hope it. You can't make them do it. So certainly the influencing thing, the engaging the hearts and minds that Frank talked about, really important in that context and understanding the context where things were going to be different and more um, important to people, I think. Okay. So coming from both, I just summarize this a bit, from yeah. both of you, there's a bit of being in an alien culture, even though in theory some components of that culture should be known to you. So both of you are used to being in a minority in the room, and suddenly you're not a minority, at least from a color point of view. There's cultural differences in the country that you're going into, and there is some unlearning of traditional ways of doing things in order to accommodate that culture. So influencing for you, uh, Jennifer, you talked very clearly about how you help people process information so that they are accounting for, acknowledging, talking about their own conclusions. And Frank, for you, about this engaging, embracing with the reasons for change and all the cultural components around hierarchy and status and respect and so forth. It sounds like a very powerful experience. Now, roll forward. You now advise companies about how to address their black strategy for their black staff. What's the primary advice that you give companies? Frank, I'll start with you. Well, you know, obviously in the U.K., it's a wider basket because it includes black, Asian, and ethnic minorities. So that could be Chinese. That could, that could be sub um, Saharan, um, Africa, um, it, you know, it's a much wider rainbow here. But the, the, the thing we, we, we tell companies is that, you know, they are struggling, and, and it's partly how we got into this, is that many companies have, have gone down focusing on increasing gender diversity. And in the U.K., I would say that's probably 95% of the companies have focused solely on the gender issue. Um, and... With one of our clients, you know, they, they came up to us and literally, they had just won an award for being one of the most, you know, um, gender-friendly, family-friendly companies in the U.K., and I bumped into the CEO and congratulated them, and he said, by the way, that's great, and we still have work to go on the gender issue, but we're making no traction on the um, black and Asian and ethnic minority um, issue. Is there anything you can do for us on that? And I, I can come back at some point and say, well, it took me two days to finally to say yes to that. Um, but finally said yes to that. And um, in conversations with Jennifer and myself and, and, and one of our third associates, um, we, we, we started to realize that, you know, the, the, the problem companies are having is, one, the conversation about race in the U.K. versus the U.S. is not one that corporate America talks about. 
um, corporate UK talks about. Race is a four-letter word in the UK. Um, CEOs really um, have in their professional orbit ethnic minorities, and quite honestly, in their personal orbit, when they go home, they probably are not um, in contact or have friends who are ethnic minorities in general. And so that distance creates its own issues and challenges um, and discomfort. And so our approach is to start from the lived experiences of the ethnic minority employees. And, and, and from that, we build some insights and recommendations for the organization. So the first thing we, we tell them is be brave because you're about to start a journey that in many ways there's no turning back because you're going to make a promise to the organization. And to be prepared because it's like deferred maintenance. Um, you know, if you never brushed the back of your teeth and only brushed the front of your teeth, you know, when you go to the doctor, dentist five years later, of course, you're going to have more problems with the teeth you didn't brush. And the, the issue is, is that very few companies have had active interventions with their ethnic minority employees. And so when we go in, we bring back to them a host of challenges that they probably were not prepared for. So we also try to prepare them for that in the beginning. Um, so, you know, be courageous and, and be prepared to react um, because by benign neglect, you probably have some issues bubbling up there that have impacted your retention and your progression of your ethnic minorities. So all the news that's going to come out, don't be surprised if some of it is bad. And in fact, in some cases, it is shocking. Okay, so Jennifer, let me direct this question to you. When I talk to managers, not necessarily the C-suite executives, managers in organizations, they routinely say to me, I don't care about the race or the gender so long as somebody does the job. I treat everybody the same. Yeah. What's your response to that? So my response would be, firstly, I think, to question whether you treat everybody the same and whether everybody wants to be treated the same. So one, one of the things that I always say to managers is the best way to manage your people and to get them to get their dis discretionary effort in the way that you want them to is to understand what's important to them as an individual. So I think there was some research done some while ago by um, McKinsey's that said, you know, for every person you've got in your team, one is likely to be motivated by what's it like to be in the team. One's likely to be motivated by personal ambition. One's likely to be motivated by the stories you tell around stakeholders. One's likely to be motivated by somebody who really wants to do a good job for the customer. So actually talking to everybody the same and treating everybody the same will not get you the results you want. It is time-consuming, but you need to understand your context first. Find out what people find important in their role and in their job so that you can help them do more of that. So I also say that when I'm advising, if you like, black employees, um, embrace your black identity. So for managers to say I'm colorblind means that you're ignoring a really important part of my identity, which I am trying to bring to work, which I'm highlighting in a place where there aren't necessarily many black people, and you're completely ignoring it. So you're, in, you're, in, you're ignoring an important part of who I am, in a way. Okay. I love that, Jennifer. Then this brings me right back to your Nigerian experience. You yeah. talked there about <laughs> learning to influence how people think, and that is around understanding how they made decisions based on their own conclusions, and it's that very tailored approach to each individual as a person. I love that one. Um, and I also like this notion of black employees um, embracing their black identity. Frank, what's your advice for black employees who are trying to make it to the senior ranks? Any thoughts? Well, it, it's, it, uh, I think there's, there's a couple of things. Is it, it, that... You know, you, if, if, if you're an ethnic minority, um, you know, in, in, in the West, you are, you know, you are going to be, you know, one of 100 in a room sometimes. Um, and, and so 
you should not look at that as a weakness, but recognize that's a strength. Many times we look at that as a weakness, and so I, you know, I, I, I have thankfully, you know, because of the things I've been able to do, I sometimes, um, or in rarefied air in terms of network meetings and such, and I look there, and I'm the only black person in the room. Now, I can look at that as a weakness, but actually what happens is that, quite honestly, I don't remember everybody who I saw a year ago um, when they say hello to me, but chances are they remember me because I am the only black person that was in that room last year and, and, and this year. And so, you know, the, 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 the value, imagine the value of being able to walk into a room and people know who you are. You know, there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time trying to build that sort of capability and, 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 and brand. And so, you know, so the first thing is don't think of that as a weakness or, or a vulnerability. That's the strength. That's, that's the strength. But I, I, I would say in, the, the, the other thing I think you have to do, and, and just speaking of that, but even the corporate world, build your networks. Build your internal networks and your external networks. I, 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 I tell people build your network two years before you need it. Because you find what happens with a lot of people, they start building their, their network on demand. They need it now. Is that, you know, build those, those internal networks. Um, you know, build, build, build relationships with, with people you would not normally, you know, who are not in your function. Um, understand what they do. Have them understand what you do. Build the external support system, and I think that's very important because particularly here in the U.K., there's very few senior black executives. So you're going to look across, you know, the, the senior executive floor, and you're not going to find anyone who looks like you. And so, you know, the, the best place to find them is going to be outside the company. So, so build that, that, that external network. Um, and again, you know, don't, uh, I think as, as Jennifer alluded to, you know, don't, don't, don't let the fact that you're a different color impact you because actually sometimes it's in our mind and, 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 and not the, the organization's mind, our color, and that sometimes holds us back. Holds us back. And certainly one, so that's been my experience. So a little story I often tell is in an organization I worked with that had a U.S. director's who used to come across and do those split-level meetings. They need to meet, you know, mm-hmm. random sample of employees in an organization. And year after year, I used to be in that random sample. And the mm-hmm. reason was that they wanted to present um, somebody that was black to their U.S. directors, and I took full advantage of that. Okay, great. So the notion is your uniqueness in ways, it makes you stand out, it becomes a strength, it gives you a different perspective, and it gives you access in ways you might not have recognized if you take advantage of it. Okay? It also has the, 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 the other side to it, though. Um, so, you know, you, 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 you know it's, not, it's not all rosy. Um, so I, I, I give you know I, I give the example of the um, time I, I was being hired as the group HR director for a company, and they sent me to, to have a company physical, and I wanted to have it first thing in the morning, eight thirty, so I could be back at my desk. And I went to the office, I filled out the little chart, you know, I lied about how many you know units of alcohol I drink each week, um, and, and handed that in. And I was the only one in the waiting room, and the doctor walks in with the board and, and, and my form on it. He looks around, sees me, he looks around again, and, and he walks out the room. Now, I knew exactly what was going in his mind, because his, his archetype of a senior executive physical was not a black male. Um, and so I have no doubt he went to the receptionist and said, where's Frank Douglas? And she said, that's Frank Douglas in there, and he came back, and you know we 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 proceeded. Um, so you know the the, the the you you will in addition to all the, you know the, the value of it. I mean, and and, and that's why we we do what we do um, in terms of consulting with companies. There is a downside to it, is that you people may not be comfortable, you may not fit the archetype of what they view um, and what they're used to. 
And presumably when you work with companies, what you're trying to help them do is uncover those experiences from their black employees and understand what has what the non-rosy parts have really been like. Okay. We've been talking for a long time, so I want to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue with both Frank and Jennifer's experiences. So with me today is Frank Douglas. Um, Frank is now with a company called Cirrus Executive, helping organizations and individuals turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones. And Jennifer Powell is doing a variety of roles between executive coach and communication change consultant in running workshops, particularly around helping people get engaged and understanding how to move forward. So we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Frank Douglas and Jennifer Powell. Frank has held a number of executive positions in a variety of companies, from Mises to Transport for London to Scottish and Newcastle PLC, Royal Dutch Shell, BT, and among others. He is now uh, has established Kairos Executive in late 2013, helping companies and organizations turn stumbling blocks into stepping stones. Jennifer Powell is also with us today. Jennifer's an accredited coach, communications change consultant, and she runs workshops on strategic leadership and communication. She's worked with a variety of financial services institutions and held a number of executive positions herself in cable and wireless, Transport for London, and Xerox Europe. So we've just been talking about the challenges of working with ethnic minority employees and what it is that you can do as a manager that is going to make a difference. And I think one of the, the highlights of that discussion so far is to recognize that I need, as a manager, I need to be clear that I know what each employee who works for me wants and that it isn't that everybody wants to be treated the same. They are not necessarily feeling the same or wanting the same or motivated by the same. And I think on the um, as a black or ethnic minority employee, the important thing to recognize is this whole notion of embracing your identity, that it is a strength. It makes you knowable. It gives you a different set of experiences. And, yes, there are some downsides that we have to learn to navigate um, when people assume we're not doing the roles that we're doing. So I want to turn now, Jennifer and Frank, to talk about your experiences as black executives, male and female, in some fairly large companies. And the reason I think this is important is as I talk to managers around the world, I think 
especially coming from a non-ethnic minority background, we fail to recognize what those experiences have been like and what they felt like. So this is a bit more personal story, but for the services that help us understand what we do to create a better culture. So, Frank, let me start with you. Kind of what has been your experience as a black male executive? Well, I, I, it's you know I've I've never been a white male. You know I was born black at a very early age, so it's the um, <laughs> it's the only experience I I I I know. Um, you know I, I was born in Jackson, Mississippi, and you know for those from the U.S., you know Jackson, Mississippi, when I was born, and I think still to this day had the lowest um, you know per capita um, income in the U.S the lowest reading average in, in the U.S., and clearly um, before the Civil Rights Act and even a little bit after that, you know, it was probably one of the most segregated and, and racist um, states in the U.S. And, and you know, that, that, that's where I was born. Um, I'm not sure it got better, but, um, you know, after that, my family moved to New York, and we settled in the South Bronx. <laughs> now, for those who know the South, the, 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 the U.S. and the late 60s, 70s, early 80s, the South Bronx was also one of the um, most notorious parts of the U.S. It, it, it was crime-written, drug-written. Um, you know, there was a movie made about a Fort Apache um, because the cops barricaded themselves inside the police station because it was so dangerous to go out. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, a key thing about being raised in that environment is that, you know, at, at the age of 21, as a black male coming out of the South Bronx and coming out of the projects, what we would call the state housing here, you know, 21, you were more likely to be in jail or dead to, than have a college degree. And what, what has always, um, I found curious in, in my career is, I, 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 I call it, it's the part of me that no one gives a damn about. Because, in fact, that part of my life has probably shaped my corporate career, but no one knows about it. Um, and and, and, and what, what, what it means is that my main driver then and now was always to do better, always to try to, you know, get out of my circumstances and my surroundings because they, they, they were pretty dire circumstances um, and surroundings. And not that it got better, because then my, my family finally saved enough money, and we moved to Queens um, in New York. And we were the first black family to, to integrate the neighborhood. Um, and, and so that was a pretty interesting um, experience. And so in, in, in many ways, the, the funny thing is that while, you know, my, my background has been primarily in, in, in a black working class and in some ways poor area, I've, I've been able, and I say humbly, to navigate a white world. And I, I, I think it, 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 it's partly because you, you start realizing what's there to fear. You know, what, what's, what, what's, what's wrong with speaking up? What's wrong with holding your ground? What's, what's wrong with, 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 with challenging? Um, there's ways to do it. Um, there's times to do it. But, you know, Coming from that, you know, my, my, my view is what's the worst that can happen to me? Um, and, you know, the, you, you mentioned winning the award um, for saving the company 200 million pounds. That's a very informative time for me because my idea got rejected seven times. That's the folklore in that company. I gave it to the management and seven times they said we couldn't do it and finally convinced the board to do it. And we did it in record time. And, you know, there's a point where you say, are you foolish or are you brave? Um, and I, I think, you know, there's a point where you have some clarity. You don't get it every day. You don't get it all the time. But there's times where you have clarity on an issue. And that's where sometimes you just have to, you know, make a stance and, and, and try to do what you think is correct. And so for me, you know, I, I think the, the, the experiences I have is, you know, Fine, you know, when you're clear on an issue and you think you're, you know, you, you challenge your own assumptions, go for it. Go for it. The other advice and the other experience I would say is that I, I've held a variety, I've worked for a variety of companies. I've never worked for a company in the same role. So I started out 
um, in pensions. I ended up in compensation. I changed jobs. I was in recruitment. I changed another job. I was in industrial relations. I wanted to be the group HR director, the chief human resource officer for a company. And so I started from there and then back down into those things I had to do. And I, I think that's, that's very key, be it ethnic minority or not, but it, it's key to understand those things you need to make your dreams come true and recognize that sometimes taking a sidestep is actually a step forward. Um, but it, it's, it's clearly, you know, I've always had a focus on what I wanted to achieve and tried to de-stack that into the sort of experiences I would need to achieve that. And, and, and that's, that's been a part of my life. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh God. Okay. I'll leave it there for now. Um, yeah. it so, it's so um, I always love to hear Frank uh, talk about that and, and we compare our stories because mine is so different to Frank's, not just because I was born in the UK, but the way in which I was brought up and educated. So I had a very smooth um, journey into being an executive and it's one that many executives would recognize. You know, I had great champions, I had great mentors, I had um, ambition which I realized. And the thing that is the same for Frank and I is the do better phrase. Now, my do better phrase came from my mother, who was a, a great role model for me in the days when women, let alone black women, did not have careers. She had a career and she had a family and she had children. So, you know, sometimes that's even the exception now. So I had a role model that I knew intimately, and I saw exactly what she did and how she did it. And she always said to me, Jennifer, you've got to do twice as well as your peers. You have to do twice as well once because you're black and you're not white and you live in a white country and you join white organizations. And you have to do twice as well number two because you're a woman and not a man and you work in a male-dominated industry. And in fact, what that meant for me was that I took that whatever success I got was because I was twice as good as everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, that gave me even more confidence. And I, and I only know this looking back that I had those great mentors who you know, uh, shaved the rough edges off me when I'd come out of university, who took the time to find out what it was I wanted to do and encourage me to do it and to give me the opportunities. So I was very often, I think, quite a high-risk appointment. I, I feel that I was quite unmanageable in some ways because I did have this supreme confidence um, that I was twice as good as everybody else and that everything was going to be okay. So my experiences, I think, are very similar to others. University, you know, graduate recruitment, first management job, second promotion, moving from organization to organization, but always broadening my experience. And my only criteria for a very long while about moving from organization to organization was, um, am I having fun? Because if I wasn't, I would become mischievous, and that was always unhelpful. And am I learning? And so I keep those two things as my touchstones even today. If I'm not learning and I'm not having fun, I'm not in the right place. Yeah. It's interesting because the, 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 the overlap between our two stories um, and, and others is regardless of our backgrounds and how we got to where we are, our lived experiences are still that as a black person. So as I tell people, uh, a, a, a taxi in London has never passed me by because I'm an American. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and, and, and so what we bring and what we, we, we try to inform our clients on is that, yeah, you, you, that person may be black and from Oxford or Harvard or Wharton or, or Edinburgh, but their lived experiences in many cases, as it was with me in the doctor's waiting room, a senior executive, um, is going to be that of a black person. That's going to be the lived experiences. Um, and so you have to understand, you know, what's that like? Because, again, our focus is not it's a nice thing to do. It's about how do you progress and retain your, your talent. 
And what we find is that the lived experiences of ethnic minorities is no one thing. It's a host of things that by 5 o'clock at the day, they're just exhausted. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just tired. Um, because it's, it's a host of, of, of micro and sometimes macro aggressions, and not always unconscious bias, and sometimes conscious bias, that actually wears them down. And, and that's where companies have the challenge, that they want to find an HR policy that can make it happen. If there's no golden thread, it's about behaviors and your leadership. There are HR policies you can pull the lever on, but it's sometimes it's just that day-to-day experience that impacts is that you know, high-performing minority going to stay with you. Um, and sometimes they don't, not because of any one thing. They're just exhausted because yeah. the culture yep. just kind of is a thousand cuts. And I think the other thing that we've learned in the work that we've done is how broad the sense of exclusion um, might be. So in one organization, um, we had somebody talk really strongly, not about the fact that she was a black woman, but the fact that she lived and came from South London. And actually in that organization where people spent their time talking about their chateau or where they lived out in um, you know, in, in the leafy suburbs actually made her feel excluded more than actually being a black woman. Or it could be um, the sense of privilege that some organizations had. And I think what was really interesting is speaking to one of our um, colleagues that we, were talk- that we were doing a group with, and she said, you know, these people talk about being rich, and they have no understanding at all about what it is to be rich. I am very, very wealthy. And actually, the way that I hear people talk about being rich is not what I would consider rich at all. And yet they didn't know this at all about this person. Um, it was something that they had assumed she had no knowledge of because of the color of um, her skin and where she came from and, and her accent. Yeah. So the, the, the breadth of the lived experience, I think, is something that I continue to learn and that it's very different in organizations. And sometimes it goes to the very culture of the organization, and that can be quite a difficult conversation because if you define culture sometimes as a glue that brings everybody together, when you start to loosen that glue to try and make it a more open and inclusive organization, you're actually rocking the foundations of your culture, and that's something that you don't do without a lot of thought and understanding the consequences of that and the benefits of doing that. Well, Frank and Jennifer, clearly lots and lots and lots to say about this, and most unfortunately, we have come to an end of our time. Let me just recap a couple of things that I take away from this sixth segment. And I think, Frank, it's your phrasing about understanding the lived experiences because that's part of what is driving every human being from whatever that background is. We have no assumptions about what the background is. It could be anything but to understand their lived experiences because that's part of the motivators. And I think the other thing, Jennifer, that strikes me again as just a general statement is making sure you understand how each person around you wants to be treated as opposed to how you assume they want to be treated and carry on. Um, And then how do we create the dialogue from there that allows us to unlearn some behaviors and relearn some other ones. So Frank and Jennifer, fabulous show today. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having us, Wanda. Thank you. Okay. All right, and then join us next week where we'll continue the conversation on a new topic. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.
is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel, and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Trends in global business are changing all the time. It used to only be worrying about your competitor across the street, but now that competitor may be across the world. On Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, we discuss the trends in global business, plus issues and solutions that business leaders face today. Each show is guaranteed to teach you something that you didn't know before about global business. Listen live every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Effective leadership is what will propel the world, organizations, and businesses through a range of dynamic changes. How do you keep up with these changes, build skills, and lead effectively? Listen for Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. Maureen offers tools and engaging guests who are leaders in their field. With each week, you'll work on and improve your skills to lead with confidence and drive your organization's success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Business. Do you realize that the root of your challenges lie within you? It's time to find out more about coaching and how it can help both you and your business. Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves will help you gain a deeper level of self-awareness to find the answers inside yourself. Our guests are business professionals just like you who agree to a coaching session on our radio program. Tune into Coaching for Real live every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. You have a message. You want to share that message. You want it to be social, to go viral, and spread across the planet. But how do you get started? Tune into Amplify, featuring host Ken Roshan. This show is here to help you take that message and channel it through the most effective marketing techniques to not only be successful, but have a positive impact on the world. Tune in live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel, and get Amplified. 